Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, hello, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles, California. Thank you for listening. It's good to be with you. Today on the program, my guest is Catherine Miles, author of a new book called Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. I mean, every investigator that I talk to relating to this case can recite you chapter and verse details about these young women's lives. And they've since forged really powerful relationships with their families. So these investigators are hugely emotionally invested. But I think sometimes that emotional investment clouds us in ways we don't even realize it does. That was Catherine Miles, author of a new book called Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. Trailed is a riveting and disturbing book in the true crime genre. It's a deep dive journalistic investigation into the murders of Lolly Winans and Julie Williams, which took place in May of 1996 in Shenandoah National Park in Virginia, not far from the Appalachian Trail. Lolly Winans and Julie Williams were young, they were idealistic, and they had fallen in love. They were skilled backcountry leaders, charismatic and bright and beautiful and beloved. These were experienced campers who knew what they were doing in the outdoors and their murders remain, officially speaking to this day, unsolved. 
So as many of you guys know, I hiked a good portion of the Appalachian Trail myself in my 20s, my early 20s, the summer of 1997. I hiked through the Shenandoah National Park in July of 1997, just over a year after these murders took place. And I can remember distinctly seeing flyers posted at various lean-tos and shelters along the trail, explaining what had happened the previous summer and asking people for help with any leads and so on. So not exactly what you want to see when you're out camping, and it's something that has stayed with me ever since. These kinds of crimes, they're always haunting and disturbing and depressing to consider. And when you're out in the wilderness and you receive such news, perhaps doubly so. And this is another thing that Catherine Miles is exploring very deftly in her book, to unnerving effect. Trailed is not only about Lolly and Julie and their unsolved murders in 1996. It's also about the wilderness and the safety of human beings in the wilderness and of women and queer women in particular in wild places, national parks, places like Shenandoah National Park, which sees well over a million visitors in any given year. Once again, the book is called Trailed. I had a very interesting conversation with Catherine Miles, and you will hear that momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Ig, publisher of my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback and ebook editions. The book is also available in an audiobook edition from Tantor Media and Highbridge Audio. The audiobook is narrated by yours truly and can be found wherever audiobooks are found. Be Brief and Tell Them Everything is a work of autofiction. It explores the themes of creation, creative exasperation, grief, loss, fatherhood, marriage, fate, failure, psychedelic reckoning, and more. It is a book that, over time, became about its own making. This is a personal story, a darkly funny one, I hope, and one more time, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now from IG. On a related note, a quick announcement that I will be reading at Stories Books in Echo Park on June 5th at 5 p.m. here in Los Angeles. I will be participating in an autofiction reading series hosted by Caitlin Forst. Other readers on that evening include Kara Blue Adams, a recent guest on this podcast, Alexandra Jade, Oliver Zarandi, and more. So if you're in LA and you want to come out for the evening and have some fun, please join us on June 5th at Stories at 5 p.m. This episode is also made possible by Tenants Cove Writers Retreat. If you are ready to get some work done on your manuscript, Tenants Cove Writers is a new retreat and workshop that offers rustic and rural glamping along with a warm and inspiring creative community. It is happening this summer, August 7th through the 14th, on a nature preserve of 150 acres in New Brunswick, Canada. The retreat is hosted and moderated by Melissa Scholes-Young, author of the novel Hive, and Peter Von Zagazar, author of the memoir The Looking Glass Brother. 
on-site tuition plus room and board is $2,500, and there are only four spots available. This is a small, intimate, limited opportunity retreat. Participants can also arrange a full manuscript review for an additional fee. At Tenants Cove Writers, uh, they're looking for serious writers who seriously want to go into retreat and make some big progress on their projects. For more information, visit tenantscovewriters.com. T-E-N-N-A-N-T-S covewriters.com. And join the retreat this summer. One more time, the website is tenantscovewriters.com. All right, so my guest today is Catherine Miles. Her new book, Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders, is available now from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Catherine Miles is the author of five books, and her essays and articles have appeared in a wide variety of publications, including Audubon, Best American Essays, Best American Sports Writing, The New York Times, Politico, and Outside Magazine. I had a really nice time meeting Catherine and talking with her about this new book, which is so heartbreaking, so gripping, so disturbing, and so illuminating in places that I was not entirely expecting. This is unsettling territory, but necessary territory, and I'm happy to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Catherine Miles, and her new book, One More Time, is called Trailed. I think, you know, all too often, especially in the true crime genre, victims kind of become sidelined in favor of the perpetrators. The perpetrators kind of become these main characters, these sort of more rounded characters, and, and sometimes the victims just seem like objects. And when I went into this project, it was imperative to me from a moral and an ethical perspective as well as a narrative one that Lolly and Julie always remained the main characters of the story. Julie Williams was a young woman who was born and raised in a small Minnesotan town. She had a very close-knit family. She was a little shy and reserved, but super competent at everything that she did. She was fluent in Spanish and as, as a high school student had started doing some translating for domestic abuse survivors. And she also had a vested interest in geology, which is what her major ended up being in college. She did a lot of missionary work in Central and South America. She did a lot of geologic work, both in Europe and in northern Minnesota, especially on Native American tribal lands. And so by the time she ended up at this outdoor organization called Woods Women, she had already kind of found a lot of competence for herself, both in terms of the backcountry and also in terms of some, some pretty hard scrabble places. Lolly Winans, two years older, she was 26 when she died. She grew up in a very affluent community in Michigan, a very wealthy family. That family had a lot of, you know, let's say maybe dysfunction to it. As she would later talk about, she was an incest survivor and 
coming forward with that story had really broken up the family in a lot of ways. She wandered a little bit after high school, kind of trying to find her niche. She was very outgoing, incredibly charming, had this great, really acerbic wit, loved the Grateful Dead, loved to go to jam band shows, you know, loved to have a bottle of Corona in her hand. And she really found her niche when she arrived at Unity College, this small environmental studies school in central Maine. And at that place, she had committed to this idea that she uh, was going to create a wilderness therapy program that would allow other sexual assault survivors to find the same kind of strength and redemption that she had found on the trail. So she arrived at Woods Women in May of 1995 to do an internship to complete her degree at Unity. And and Woods, Woods Women was in Minnesota. That was like Boundary Waters. Is that right? Uh, They spent a lot of time in the Boundary Waters. They were focused, right, they were based right outside of Minneapolis. And it was this really wonderful organization that had been created as sort of a corrective to Outward Bound, the National Outdoor Leadership School, these other sort of hierarchical outward schools. So so Woods Women came out of, of folks who had had an experience either at Knowles or at Outward Bound and thought, you know, this idea of sort of increasing stress in a participant's experience really kind of only works for a certain type of participant. And for other people, especially people who identify as female or non-binary or queer, they're already coming with a level of stress to the wilderness. And so so continuously stressing them is really only going to kind of disengage them from that landscape. Um, and so, so that organization is where Lolly and Julie had met. And by all accounts, it was love at first sight. And so they had this very kind of cozy summer in this very sort of safe, holistic, nurturing, consensus-based environment where, where they felt really fairly safe being outwardly in love. And then as the summer came to an end, had to sort of confront the challenge of what is it to be LGBTQ plus in 1996? And how are we going to manage that? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that I had to confront when I was reading was thinking about where gay rights were in the 90s. It was a much different world. I like to think of my college years in Boulder as this sort of like wide open, you know, free progressive time or whatever. But it wasn't, I mean, maybe it was in those little bubbles, but it certainly wasn't that way as broadly as it is now though i guess things are maybe regressing or they're trying to push things back you know certain factions are anyway but in the 90s it was not a it was not necessarily as simple to be out and open and public about your gay relationship not at all you know and as i say in the preface of the book i think it's really important to sort of consider and remind ourselves of the zeitgeist of the time. You know, we have multiple states who are passing anti-sodomy laws. We have the Supreme Court affirming those laws. We're still really in the thick of the HIV scare for a lot of people. You know, and this is the the murder of Lolly and Julie is about two and a half years before the murder of Matthew Shepard. And so, so, you know, there's a lot of very sort of anti-gay sentiment that that's sort of reverberating through the country at this time. Yeah, there was some, I think you documented in your book, one of the, was it an anti-sodomy law that passed in Colorado during that time? Or Is that right? That was right. And Oregon had narrowly defeated a very similar law that was basically going to, to make homosexual behavior, and I put that in scare quotes, illegal. Wow. 
So yeah, so not not maybe the totally warm, fuzzy place that I like to remember, you know, as I'm idealizing my college days. And Lolly and Julie were both abuse survivors. I think you mentioned Lolly's, uh, be, Lolly being an incest survivor and how difficult that must have been. And then Julie herself was a date rape survivor, as were you, which you write about in the book. And you're also an outdoors woman. You love the outdoors and have gotten, I think, a lot of the same comfort and insight from the outdoors that Lolly and Julie got in their lifetimes. So that's the, I mean, that's, those are the obvious lines of connection for you to these young women and to this story. That's right. That's right. And I think you and I are probably just about contemporaries because I graduated from college in 1996 and I had prior to that final year of my studies, you know, I had really struggled to come to terms with what had also been a date rape when I was 16 years old and I hadn't told anyone. And as I say in the book, you know, I went through what I now understand are a lot of fairly common responses. Like this must have somehow been my fault or I must have some done something wrong or I must have somehow brought this on myself. And so so for those last two years of, of high school and then my first two years of college, you know, I was battling with emotional scars that I didn't even understand I was battling with. And my initial response to all of that was just to try as hard as I could to get out of my body. And so I was studying the most esoteric theology and philosophy that I could. I was just rail thin. I was, you know, I think 100 pounds, you know, by the, by that time. And just anything I could to sort of avoid my bodily self. But then I was taking an environmental studies course that had a mandatory backpacking trip on it. And I was totally unprepared. I had no idea what I was doing. But I really fell in love with the concept of backpacking and the idea that you could literally just sort of shoulder your most essential provisions and what you needed and supplies. And you could go out in the wilderness and you could feel strong and safe and empowered. And it was in that moment that I really found a way back into my own body. And so I had just newly discovered this sort of beautiful pastime that I kind of saw as my salvation. And then when I when I learned about these two murders and the murders of, of another very similar couple that had occurred um, also just off the Appalachian Trail, it really shattered my sense of security in the wilderness and really changed my approach to you know all kinds of backcountry activities. Yeah, so this murder that you're referring to, I believe, is the one that took place at the Thelma Mark shelter in Pennsylvania on a section of the Appalachian Trail. Uh, That's actually a third. I was actually talking about the murder of um, Claudia Brenner and Rebecca Wright, which Claudia Brenner documents in a really amazing book called Eight Bullets. But yes, the Thelma Marks is actually the third murder. I can't keep track, to be honest. Like I was going through your book after I'd read it, and there's so much going on. There's a complexity to trying to solve a cold case crime. (laughs) And also there's a complexity, just a basic fundamental complexity to unpacking all the different violent crimes that have taken place in the wilderness, which is one of the more unnerving aspects of your book. Uh, We like to think of the wilderness as being a safe place removed from the perils of society and the inner city and all that goes along with it. And 
I suppose like maybe statistically it is, but it, it's like this book and these stories call it into question. One of the things that I can hope that this book might be able to do, I really hope that it can spark a larger conversation about this issue of both equity and equality and access to wilderness and then also safety in the wilderness. And one of the really disturbing things that I learned when I was researching the book was not just that violent crimes are underreported in our national parks and our other sort of national wilderness places, but but there is no codified system for reporting crimes in the parks. It's sort of an ad hoc park by park system. And as both the Government Accountability Office and also the Inspector General of the Department of the Interior has found, is that that these crimes are are not getting reported. And 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 similarly instances of harassment, sexual assault, bad behavior that's occurring employee on employee in these parks is also radically underreported. You know, we've seen some some exposés that have been done in the past 5 years. Outside Magazine did a really big one looking at the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon and the pervasiveness of sexual harassment there, but but it continues to be a really big problem and one that that I don't even think we really have the data for to really understand. Yeah, yeah. And before we move on uh, any further, I want to go back to you in Pennsylvania, you know, having this great enthusiasm for the outdoors and then, you know, being on a section of the Appalachian Trail there and learning about these or this killing. It was, if I'm remembering this right, one person was killed, the other person survived. Is that right? That's the Claudia Brenner case. The The case that you're referring to at the Thelma Marks was a young couple, Molly LaRue and Jeff Hood, who had also been through hiking the trail. And they had stopped at this original, really kind of folksy old shelter that was known as the Thelma Marks shelter. And there they encountered a man who immediately murdered Jeff and then really brutally raped Molly for repeatedly before he murdered her, disposed of their bodies sort of back behind the shelter, took their gear, and then just continued hiking down the trail and wasn't apprehended until he got all the way down to Harper's Ferry. When was was this again in time? Yeah, and I'm going to have to guess on that. I'm going to say that that was late 80s, early 90s, but I would have to look it up to be sure. It was before it was before Lolly and Julie. So I was going to graduate school out at the University of Delaware, which was right, you know, in the the, the foothills of the trail. And and I would spend a lot of my weekends and school breaks backpacking. And as I write in the book, it was a it was a November day in 1998 that I was doing a section hike. And I had stopped for what I thought would be the night at the Thelma Marks shelter. And I was, you know, in my sort of sanctimonious way, really sort of distraught to see that the Appalachian Trail crew were building a brand new shelter. And I thought, Oh, God, this is like this relic of, you know, the original trail. And how could they possibly tear it down? And I have this conversation with one of the trail crew workers who who says to me, well, you know, we have to tear it down because of the murder. And he then unpacks the story of, of Molly and Jeff, and, and I'm sitting right there, you know, and, and in that moment, it was, it was just so inconceivable to me that something so terrible and brutal could happen in this place that I thought of as sort of, you know, pastoral and almost sort of otherworldly in its safety. And, you know, I didn't sleep a wink that night. I got home, I 
you know, we didn't even have Google then, right? So I was using, I don't know, Alta Vista to kind of look <laughs> up and I start to learn about these these murders. And that was actually the first time I had learned of Lolly and Julie's murder. Somehow with college graduation and everything else like that, I had missed it the first time around, despite the fact that it was national news. And so now I have this, I'm sitting with this collection of murders on or near the Appalachian Trail, many of which, you know, include women, multiple of which include women who identify as queer. And and I'm sitting there thinking, how could I possibly ever go back out on the trail again? Right, right. And then you went on to work at Unity College as a teacher, which is Lolly's alma mater, and which I believe to this day, like memorializes her with a stone fireplace or something. Like there's a memorial on campus that's prominent and her murder obviously had a huge impact on what is a pretty small school and that really i think began your deeper level of connection to this case and to lolly and then uh, julie as well correct that's right so i arrived in fall of 2001 my first day of teaching at the college was september 9th 2001 and my second day of teaching was september 11th 2001. And so everything about my teaching experience there was really sort of through the lens then of this, you know, terrorist attack. But, but even before that, as soon as I had arrived on campus, you know, Lolly was just everywhere on that campus. As you mentioned, there's this large stone fireplace in the Welcome Center that was dedicated to her. There's an outdoor leadership award that's given to a, a female student every year. And, you know, she's just, it's such a tiny, community it was about 500 undergraduates when I got there. And, you know, she was just everywhere. You know, my colleagues had been her professors and advisors. You know, I became friends with her friends. And, and she was just, there was this aura of her everywhere. So then flash forward just a few months to April of 2002. Campus still really rocked by September 11th, as I think we all were. And then John Ashcroft, the Attorney General for the United States, makes this very public live press conference that again is covered by every major media agency and he says you know listen we've made an indictment in the williams and winans case it's this guy named daryl david rice he says he hates gays we're going to treat this as the first federal hate crime in in the u.s using this brand new hate crime legislation and then he makes this very weird pivot where he says you know by by convicting and and executing daryl rice we're not only going to bring closure to the Williams and the Winans family, but we're also going to bring closure to this grieving country who's trying to come to terms with September 11th and, and the hate crimes that that it brought about. And so, of course, you've got, again, just the inc- incredible sort of like just arrival of the media once again, the national media back on our campus again. And, you know, you've got the folks, myself included at that point in the community, simultaneously kind of scratching our heads and thinking like, wait, you know, great, an indictment, but but what does that have to do with September 11th? And then, and then also most of us thinking, oh, thank goodness, they finally got the guy, you know, now the story is over. Hmm. It's funny, like when I was reading that section of the book, I was like, I don't remember this, which isn't maybe that surprising because I don't have a great memory, but I feel like I would have remembered seeing that news conference, but I somehow missed it, you know, in the the world of life. And before we get too deeply into Daryl Rice, I want to visit the Shenandoah and the Bridal Trail and the 
the crime itself against Lolly and Julie. Can you just like for just so listeners understand what happened? I mean, obviously the girls were killed, but they had been hiking there. They were on a backpacking trip. Can you just give kind of a broad strokes overview of, of what mm-hmm. happened? Mm-hmm. So, you know, after they left Woods Women, Lolly returned to Unity. Julie decided she'd move in with a friend in Vermont. So she'd be close, but kind of not on top of Lolly in terms of trying to figure out their relationship. So they were about five hours apart. And it was a rocky school year for them. They were both trying to come to terms with their sexuality. They were trying to figure out what it meant to be in a lesbian relationship again in, you know, 1995 and 1996. And they had had some ups and downs. But that spring, they had really recommitted to each other. They had decided to move in together for the summer. It was going to be a really busy summer for both of them. And so they decided to take this, you know, what would be about 10 days to go do this kind of easy breezy backpacking trip. They picked Shenandoah because it would be spring there, you know, up here in Maine, as I'm talking to you, it's not spring. (laughs) I'm kind of shivering in my office. (laughs) But uh, so Shenandoah, nice weather. And, and, you know, they didn't want a lot of mileage. What they wanted was a lot of time together. And so, so they set out, and we know from both their journals and from their backcountry permits that they weren't covering much mileage every day. They were just really taking it easy and stopping to swim and sunbathe and take a lot of photographs. At one point, they decided to descend down this, this disused trail called the Bridal Trail. And as I say in the book, about a decade earlier, it had been the actual bridal trail, which is to say the trail that all of these horse riding trips would go down from Skyland Lodge. And that required folks on horses to cross the only major thoroughfare in the park, which is Skyline Drive. And so the powers that be that controlled the stables, you know, sort of decided, let's just keep these trail rides on one side of Skyline Drive so we don't have novice riders on horses trying to cross a busy street. In the decade that followed, this trail became completely disused. It disappeared from some maps. To this day, if you don't know exactly where the trailhead is, it's really hard to find. I have to kind of walk up and down Skyline Drive a little bit to find it. And I can't even tell you the number of times I've been there at this point. Um, So nobody really thought about this trail and nobody really knew about this trail. Somehow Lolly and Julie find themselves on it and they hiked down about um, a third of a mile, and then being good backcountry campers, they bushwhack about 200 yards off the trail and establish what is ultimately a completely hidden campsite. And so they set up camp there. At some point, the perpetrator comes upon them, and what follows is an incredibly organized and sophisticated crime. This is a person who manages to subdue two women and a dog, He's come with with what experts call a murder kit. So he's got a bag that has duct tape. It has a knife. We think it has a gun. He brings gloves, possibly a change of clothes, subdues the women, separates them, sexually assaults Lolly with a vibrator, or I'm sorry, Julie with a vibrator, murders both of them with a, a very sort of horrendous slash to both necks. And so then disappears. And because this is a backcountry crime, and because the women are out of range and cell phones don't really exist, no one even knows this crime happens for days. And that's going to complicate investigations and all sorts of things later on. Yeah, yeah. And you know, 
I think like it might be useful to listeners who have never visited Shenandoah National Park to get a topographical like idea, like a picture of it. What I remember from my hike on the Appalachian Trail is how excited I was to hike the Shenandoah because everyone was like, it's pretty flat. You learn to love when you're through hiking or doing a long hike flat because there's so many uphills. <laughs> and and frankly, downhills can be difficult with a heavy pack too, sometimes more difficult. And so the Shenandoah National Park, as I remember it, is basically like Skyline Drive sort of traces the spine of this mountain range. And the trail sort of does as well. And it rises up out of this beautiful valley. And there are lots of great views, lots of, lots of tree cover in rainier times, you know, lots of running water. Like when I was there, all the water sources were down because there had been this drought. So mm. when I was reading your descriptions of the park in the summer of 1996 with like these, like these rushing rivers and like overflowing creeks and stuff, I was like, wow, I remember struggling to find water to fill up my bottle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but beautiful place. Lots of, also lots of wildlife because there's no hunting allowed inside of national parks. So the Shenandoah is one of the sections of the trail where, you know, deer will not run away from you. Like they'll just be sort of like staring at you and bear are all over the place. I remember seeing four or five bear in the park at not that far of a, a distance. So it's a lovely place. It's a complicated place too, because, you know, it's really close to Washington, DC. So super accessible for folks. Skyline Drive you know, which runs, as you say, down the backbone is, is super hectic in the summer, but, but, you know, step a half mile off of Skyline Drive and it feels like incredible wilderness. It's also, you know, it's also a park with this really difficult history, you know, thousands of Appalachian homesteaders were forcibly evicted to build the park there and their descendants still feel like that's their land. And so it's always had a huge problem with, with poaching both of animals like bear and then also with things like ginseng. And it's been really beleaguered in terms of its staffing and its ability to sort of meet challenges, even including things like acid rain and smog. And so so it's beautiful and also really fraught. And I think that's what makes it such a great sort of environment for this crime to happen and, and succeed in some ways. Well yeah, it's one of the it's one of the few sections of the AT where there is like a thoroughfare, like a, a automotive thoroughfare running at close range to the trail itself, you know? And it's one of the few sections where you're crisscrossing with the road and like able to get like a restaurant meal or take a shower mm -hmm. or whatever. So that's, an, mm -hmm. but that's another reason why I think through hikers like it. Cause it's like, Ooh, some, yeah. conven some modern conveniences, but <laughs> I take, I take your point. I take your point. You know, it does complicate things and it does, you know, create, opportunities for a lot of different kinds of people to wind up in the park and on those trails, you know, interacting together. And there was a page in the book that I dog-eared and it was really where you start to get into Daryl David Rice, who, as you mentioned a, a moment ago, was the person that John Ashcroft and the DOJ of 2002 indicted for the crime or for the crimes. And I believe it was July of 1997, you said that Daryl David Rice, you know, you described Daryl David Rice committing an assault within the park, which is how he came to law enforcement's attention with regard to Lolly and Julie. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really, you know, after this murder happens, after 
rangers eventually find the bodies. It is, by their account, the fog of war, right? This is a, a joint FBI, National Park Service, law enforcement ranger case because it is National Park Service land. So you've got these two different agencies, very different cultures within them, kind of butting heads and trying to figure out how to work together. They go through dozens and dozens of suspects, including some of the rangers who the FBI began to suspect. And by, as you say, by the summer of 97, the, the case has basically grown cold. As far as they're concerned, they've exhausted all of their possible suspects. And they're, you know, I think feeling, frantic is probably too strong of a word, but they're certainly feeling the urgency of needing to somehow move this case forward. And at that point, Daryl Rice, who is a young computer programmer from outside of Baltimore, who has lifelong mental health challenges, bipolar and schizophrenia, his life is completely unraveling by this point. He's lost his job. He's not taking medication for his mental illness. And he's been spending a lot of time at his dad's house, which is right outside the park. Daryl Rice is a really avid cyclist. And, you know, he would spend a lot of weekends cycling through the park. On this particular weekend in July of 97, he had been fired. He's, he's, like I said, really kind of emotionally and psychologically unraveling. He's been up for days, smoking a ton of marijuana, and he's driving kind of aimlessly through the park. And he spies this Canadian woman who is cycling on the main drag. And he, for whatever reason, kind of fixes her in his sights. He drives back and forth a few times. He's yelling expletives at her. Uh, he throws a soda bottle at her at one point. He runs her off the road and kind of has these sort of like menacing hands in front of him. And he says, I'm going to get you. And at that point, she manages to run away um, to get to a little store and to call for help. As soon as this gets back to the rangers, the rangers think to themselves, we've got our guy. They initially apprehend him and and they say, you know, Daryl, did you attack that cyclist back there? And he's like, no. And they're like, Daryl, did, did you attack the cyclist back there? And he's like, yeah, I did. And he's, he said, hey, did you ever catch the guy who killed those two women last summer? And at that point, the Rangers are like, this has got to be the guy. So he was arrested for this 97 assault. And while he is arrested and waiting trial for that and being held, they use that as an opportunity to really put the focus of the investigation on him. And frankly, from July 1997 until today, the focus of the investigation has never left him. Hmm. So I want to talk about law enforcement. But before I do that, I want to ask you to describe how you got from somebody who knew about the murders, was experiencing uh, a place and a culture that was very connected to them at Union College or Unity College. What was it? Unity. Unity. Right? Yeah, Unity. To a woman obsessed with the case enough to write a book about it. You just give my listeners, many of whom are writers, like that story in a nutshell. Like, how did you make the transition? <laughs> when did the, when did the switch flip? Like, when did this get real? Yeah, you know. So I think, like a lot of people, you know, when this indictment gets announced in two thousand two, I just assumed it was case closed, and I just assumed that justice had been served. And then in 2015, I had left Unity teaching full time. And at that point, I was working as a trail correspondent for Outside Magazine. 
summer of 2016, the FBI comes out with this huge sort of national media push um, to say that they're looking information to lead to the conviction of the 1996 Shenandoah murders. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, I thought we already got that guy, you know? Um, and so I had arranged a few preliminary interviews with the FBI agent in charge. And he made it very clear that he believed that Rice continued to be the suspect. In 2004, the indictment against Rice was dismissed using a legal concept called without prejudice. So basically what that means is the prosecution goes to the judge, and in this case went to the judge the day before jury selection in Rice's case and said, listen, we feel really confident in our case, but for whatever reason, there's been sort of a procedural snafu that's not gonna let us proceed the way we wanna proceed. So we're gonna dismiss the charges but we reserve the right to bring them back whenever we want. And so Rice continues to live in this state of sort of double jeopardy. And when I was talking to the FBI in 2016, they really made it seem like, look, we just need that last peg so that we can really make sure that this is gonna be a successful prosecution. And despite what I know I'm supposed to do as a journalist in terms of being objective, I think I really went into the story believing that line of thought, that that they just needed that one last thing to convict Rice. And it wasn't until I started digging into what I thought was going to be a really easy feature story, and I started getting access to court documents, that I really began to realize just how thin the case was against Rice. And along the way, I also started to see just what were indefensible lengths that the FBI and the Justice Department had gone to to try to pin this on Rice to the exclusion of other seemingly obvious suspects. And so then I had, you know, sort of a growing number of what looked like mistakes, if not malfeasance on the part of the Justice Department. And at that point, I was like, all right, this isn't a 5,000 word story. This isn't a 10,000 word story. You know, this is this is a full length project. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you know, there's a, a great part of the book where you're describing visiting, I believe, uh, like an FBI facility where they are processing evidence. And forgive me if I'm getting the chronology wrong or whatever, but uh, I think it's like that visit and then they take you to the park and you visit the the scene of the murder in the company of FBI agents and also uh, park law enforcement, Correct. Yeah, you know, after some back and forth, the FBI curated this really kind of first rate tour for me, um, which in hindsight, I think is because they saw this as a really great kind of PR opportunity. So I was able to spend a day at the forensic lab at Quantico Marine Base. And then they amassed this collection of investigators, past and present. We were just this parade of humans who then went down to the murder scene. And it was there that I started to really see the tension between the National Park Service investigators and the FBI agents. And it was then, you know, I, as I say in the book, one of the lead Park Service investigators takes me aside at the end of the tour and gives me his card. This is like sort of out of Hollywood noir, right? Well, I know. He gives I, me this card. I, yeah, I don't want to interrupt, but I'm just saying like this, this description of the tension between the two departments, like it's total Hollywood. This is always the case. And it makes me think of men. It feels so male, like so masculine, this kind of energy where it's like, I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. And it's like, guys, 
we're trying to solve a murder, a double murder here. Can we just work together? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just seems like a power struggle and it kind of misses the point of the whole thing. So I don't know. That's my little aside. But I do want to name this Park Service law enforcement official, Tim Alley, because he plays a pretty significant role in the book. And he's the one who hands you his card and, and says, I'll tell you everything I know, basically. Right. Yeah. And, you know, to his incredible credit, you know, he sat for hours and hours and hours of interviews with me, sometimes with other investigators. It was really important to me that I kind of approach this from as many possible angles as possible. So at one point, a former sheriff's deputy who had grown up in the area, she um, she travels down to the park with me. And, you know, she's part of talking to Allie as well, too. And then his eventually I make my way to Rice's defense team which includes a woman named Deirdre Enright, who went on to found the Virginia Innocence Project. And there's this, this, this tension, again, almost kind of Hollywood tension between Deirdre Enright and Tim Alley, who, you know, as I say, both really good at their jobs, fundamentally opposed to each other in terms of their take on the case. And so they become these kind of two main characters and foils for me as I'm trying to sort out all of the information and what it means. Yeah, so Tim Alley believes uh, that Daryl Rice is the killer. Deirdre Enright, who runs the Innocence Project, is his defense attorney. And, you know, I think defense attorneys often work for guilty people. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But she deeply believes in his innocence, which needs to be underscored, you know, to a degree that might distinguish itself in her career. You know what I'm saying? He's one of these people that she's like, I know He's innocent, basically. She has that conviction. So there's a great tension there. And I think now is a good time to talk about law enforcement. And one of the things about your book that stands out to me is the ways in which it portrays the complexity of law enforcement, these, you know, interdepartmental conflicts and, you know, power, power struggles, the unique challenges presented by crimes that occur outdoors in terms of gathering evidence, securing a crime scene, in terms of, you know, locating fingerprints and evidence, all the rest. It's it's all a little bit more difficult when you factor in things like rain, for example, or animals and, you know, all this different stuff. But then I think in a contemporary context in particular, what I kept thinking about was like, wow, you know, so much of the conversation that I hear in the culture about law enforcement nowadays is these like systemic issues within law enforcement, like racism, police violence, you know, the ways in which police have abused their position of authority, particularly with respect to communities of color. Like these are the kinds of conversations that I often hear. And they're not without merit. You know, these are vital discussions to have. But in your book and with respect to the, you know, the murders of Julian Lolly and also the other murders that you describe in the book, what we're up against is the vital need for effective law enforcement to help solve violent crime when it happens and the ways in which it often fails. And I don't know, I found that to be striking and I found it to be a necessary piece of the puzzle when it comes to thinking of law enforcement in a holistic way. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, I just feel like what happens when you need a cop, (laughs) Uh, you know, when something terrible happens and you need law enforcement to come in and do its job, you know, you want it to be effective and you want these people to be super competent and to do their jobs well. And 
it's a really complicated, difficult job. And you do a great, I think you do a great service to that truth because, man, I came out of this just being like, it's got to be really tough to be somebody assigned to one of these crimes and to have to live with it and unpack it and be responsible for it. It's also frustrating at times to read about the incompetence and these sort of like juvenile squabbles that happen between departments and, you know, all the, all the things you've talked about. And, uh, it it just, it, it did a nice job of making what I imagined to be very complex real. So I will let you talk more about this, but (laughs) I'm imagining you have thoughts, you know, having spent so much time with people who work in these fields and having experienced the frustrations that I'm sort of alluding to here. Yeah, you know, and I and I really sort of appreciate what you're saying. And for me, I think certainly with this particular story, I think separating the individuals from the institutions is really important, right? You know, Tim Alley couldn't be a better guy, you know, and he couldn't be a better investigator, you know, I mean, and, and I could say the same thing for other investigators who worked in this case. But there is a systemic problem, both in terms of how we train law enforcement and then also kind of what we grant law enforcement. You know, most federal law enforcement officers are trained at a single federal law enforcement institute that's, that's based in Georgia. And they all go through the same homicide training and the same evidence collection training. And, and as you pointed out, none of that helps with a wilderness case, right? You know, the step number one is secure the premises, you know, put tape across the door, measure the room in which the body is found, you know, note every entrance and exit. None of that makes sense in the wilderness, right? You know, where a crime scene begins and ends is impossible to determine. As you know, one FBI expert was showing me, you know, we were standing at the crime scene and we were looking at hundreds, if not thousands of of rocks around us. And he was like, you know, one of these could be a murder weapon and 999 of these could just be rocks. And and how do you know? So that's part of it. But, you know, and in the book, I don't think by now it's probably a secret that, you know, that I really take issue with the sort of institutional problems and sort of longitudinal problems with the FBI that go back really to its founding. You know, it's always had a really mushy mission. We've given the FBI a lot of power to police itself. And, you know, increasingly, there are reports from governmental agencies like the GAO about where the FBI is falling short, you know, and what, where law what, what, is, what is the GAO? Just for just oh, so sorry, the Government Accountability Office. So we have these statistics that are really sobering in our country, right? We have 250,000 cold homicide cases in the country. Now, obviously, those are not all or even mostly the FBI, some are local jurisdictions and state police and things like that. We've had something like 3800 exonerations of innocent people in the last decade of people who were convicted for violent crimes, but who in fact were later exonerated because advances in DNA technology showed that they were innocent. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of rape kits that haven't even been tested yet. You know, so those are cases that are nowhere close to closure. And that's what I mean when we say, when I say separate the individuals from the institutions, it's no one individual's fault that our sort of forensic 
judicial processes are, are crumbling if they were ever even solid together. But these are really solvable problems that for whatever reason as a country we've chosen not to address. And when you speak about crime in the wilderness, you know, we touched upon this earlier about how it's very easy to romanticize the wilderness and think of it as this otherworldly, otherworldly place that's removed from, you know, the stresses and darknesses that plague more populated zones. But I believe it was near the, the page that I dog-eared where Daryl Rice committed this assault uh, against this Canadian woman. And, and forgive me, her last name begins with an M, I believe. It's Malbasha. M- Malbasha, that's right. And so I was in the Shenandoah in July of 1997. So of course I was like, whoa, you know, like I think it happened a little bit before I arrived there because I, I came into Virginia like right around the 1st of July and probably didn't make it to the Shenandoah until towards the end. But there, I believe in this section of the book, was a cataloging of other crimes and assaults and weird incidences or weird incidents on the trail that sort of made my hair stand up because I was like, wow, like this is more than I would have expected. And like, it's disturbing. (laughs) And it's also like, what do we not know? Like it was a, you know, you talk about these things being outliers. It's like, oh, well, yeah, a violent crime on the trail happens once every 10 years. It's like a shark attack. You know, it shouldn't be something that dictates your behavior. You know, you could still get in the ocean basically. But this made me rethink it. I was like, wow, this is quite a lot of weird, grim behavior happening in a pretty concentrated area of the trail all within a, a, a pocket of the summer, you know? So can yeah, you speak well, to that? Yeah. You know, after this, after this happens, after the Rangers determine that this is in fact a double murder, one of the first things they do is they use the cameras that are at the entrance stations of the park and they get the license plates of all the cars that came and went that week. And using that, they are able to come up with this spreadsheet of who was in the park. And and as you say, and I, you know, I kind of just sort of laugh, not because it's funny, but because of the absurdity of it, the number of registered sex offenders, escaped felons, people who are convicted for violent crimes, people who are armed and dangerous that, that are, that show up in this list was utterly astonishing to me and then you have these park employees who start reporting each other as well you know so and so has a bloody knife under his bed you know so and so murdered his girlfriend and you know i'm reading all of this and i'm thinking exactly what you just said which is wow you know i've spent a lot of time in national parks have i been shoulder to shoulder with all of these folks and not even realized it yeah i mean that's what i was thinking and i was reflecting because there was a guy in virginia that i met who was about to go into prison and I, I hiked with him for a couple of days, nice guy about my age, but it was like a cocaine thing, you know? So it was like, well, I didn't feel any kind of, <laughs> I was like, eh, you know, he's young and he was from, was from Appalachia and I think just got into trouble, you know, and, and was going to go to prison. So there was that, but there were also a lot of people struggling with addiction who were out there. And let's be honest, like if you want to hide, if you want to get away from it all, if you're trying to transform yourself, I mean, I don't think there's anybody out there on a through hike who's not dealing with something. But, you know, you 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 want to believe that the wilderness is this safe zone. But then when you think more deeply about it, especially when it's a long trail like the AT with all this notoriety, there's a certain logic to the idea that there would be some peop- some unsavory people out there trying to sort of stay below the radar or just be weird without consequence, you know. 
Yeah, and I think that's probably always been true. But you know, if you look at the numbers of people who are either through hiking or section hiking, when you and I started doing this, it still hadn't spiked, right? We still hadn't had Bill Bryson's Walk in the Woods. We still hadn't had Cheryl Strayed's Wild. And those two books alone, you know, created this exponential rise in traffic on the trails. And in some ways, it's been really fantastic, right? It's really taken what was very sort of monolithic about the types of people who went to the trail. And it really broadened that in terms of gender and race and sexuality and even just body types, right? You see a lot more diversity on the trail. But you also see a lot more people profoundly underprepared. We see a lot more people, you know, hiking the trail, not to kind of get well or find nature, but to party or to hook up. And so the number of cases of like sexual harassment of hiker on hiker that, you know, have been reported recently is kind of disturbing. And, and then yeah, you also start to see people who um, are using the trail for other ends, you know, to sort of, as you say, drop out, you know, or um, to hunt, you know, and since I started this book, there have been other murders, including other murders on the trail itself. And, you know, as, as somebody who, who loves that place so much, it's really hard for, for me to confront all of that. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And, you know, as you describe the aftermath of Lolly and Julie's murders and law enforcement's response, one of the things that's frustrating is just the pace of investigations. Some of this is a, a necessary thing. You know, they have to be painstaking, you sort of gathering evidence. At first, they thought it was a murder-suicide. That was kind of infuriating because it was like, really? Like, they're, they were both bound. They were tied up. And it they were killed with a, a slash to the neck, each of them. That's a murder-suicide? That seems really... Oh, before un- that, it was a bear attack. The oh, right. The official report was that it was a bear attack. Very right. sophisticated bear. Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, there's there's those elements of it that I'm less sympathetic to. There's other elements of it where, you know, it's just hard work and they're out there in the night and there's the weather and they're trying to do their best and there's, you know. And then, you know, you describe, as we've spoken about, the, the Daryl Rice uh, case... And that going, you know, coming apart for the prosecution. And then there's your role in it where you're kind of sorting through all this and talking to all these people and having extended conversations with Tim Alley, who was in the Daryl Rice did it camp. But then you meet Deirdre Enright, who had been presented to you, I think, by Tim as somebody who's, you know, uh, not the greatest character. But you wound up really liking her and you paint her as a very in a very sympathetic light as somebody with great charisma and uh, somebody who is very skilled at what she does. And it was a real leap of faith for me. I went in really suspicious because I I think I had a lot of prejudice about defense attorneys and the work that they do. I think I thought defense attorneys defend guilty people. <laughs> and, you know, so I, you know, she, Deirdre is, plays a pivotal role in, seri- in um, season one of Serial. I had heard her there. Um, I had also heard, as you said, some unsavory things about her. And so I had contacted a few friends of mine who do a lot more journalistic work in the world of the Innocence Project and and exonerations. And I had asked them to kind of vet her for me. And even after she and I started working together, I was still really suspicious. I was like, is this woman just trying to sell me a bill of goods to get her client 
free. As it turned out, you know, she had 22 boxes of evidence that the prosecution had originally not shared with the defense that she kind of keyed into during this these discovery exchanges. It was all being kept in a in a storage unit, the kind of place where you'd store, you know, furniture or a boat or something. And she had bought a photocopier and brought it over and photocopied thousands of pages of evidence. So so very quickly it became not whether or not I trust Deirdre Enright, but the fact that Deirdre Enright is giving me access, unfettered, unprecedented access to 22 boxes of evidence having to do with this case that I just wouldn't have had otherwise. And it was really that evidence, you know, working through it initially with her and then just working through it, frankly, on my own, that eventually led me to kind of come to the same conclusion she did, which is not only did Daryl Rice not do it, but there's this other suspect who I think we can make a very strong case for as the perpetrator. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I don't think I'm going to ask you to talk too much about that because I feel like readers should be able to discover that part of the book on their own. But I do want to talk with you about the impact that these killings had. Obviously, you can imagine how difficult and traumatic it would be for immediate family and friends, you know, surviving the loss of loved ones in this way. That's sort of a given. But one of the things that I think you do nicely is you really articulate for the reader like what an impact it has on people like Tim Alley. Uh even on Deirdre Enright. I mean, she's living with a lot of ghosts, you know. And they these people carry this stuff with them. You yourself, you know, spending all these years thinking about this and and doing all this research and living with these images and these crimes, it really takes its toll. And not only that, and I think this is where it really came home for me in the book, you know, there are people who were in the park in the summer of 1996. I believe that was it. I'm thinking of the women that you went and visited in the mm-hmm. upper Midwest. Was it mm-hmm. the Anns? Is it the Anns? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I call them that because three of the five are named Anne. Yeah. So these were hikers who had planned this great backpacking, you know, trip as a group in the summer of 1996, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, they were so excited about it. They were new to the sport. And, you know, for reasons that no one has been able to explain to me, the park made the decision to withhold news of this double murder until the media found out on their own. So for about, for close to 48 hours from the time the bodies are discovered, millions of, of, of visitors are, are streaming into this park, having no idea that, that, that what could very likely be a serial killer is still in the park. We have no reason to believe this person is not in the park. And rangers are instructed to obfuscate. You know, park officials have decided that they're not going to say anything. When the media finally kind of ferrets this out late in the day on a Monday, the park continues to try to say that that they think it's a murder-suicide, you know. And so... So these women, the Anns, who for me are emblematic of, of all of the visitors who were at the park at that time, they're hiking through and they're starting to hear kind of rumors and whispers 
they're approaching rangers and saying, look, what's going on? Are we safe here? You know, and by the time they find out what's actually happened, they feel so profoundly betrayed by the park that there's these this doubling of the trauma right there's the 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 fear i think that comes with realizing that someone just like them had been brutally murdered and then there's also the sense of betrayal that they they you know they they're like look you know the park and and rangers are supposed to be protecting us and we feel like you kind of left us out to dry and you left us in this incredibly vulnerable position and that's something they're still dealing with today. It was very clear to me meeting with them that 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 they have not resolved that issue yet. Twenty five years later, yeah. I mean, these crimes they have they take they have a big psychic impact. You know, friends uh, of Lolly and Julie. I really feel for them, especially at a young age like that. You know, it's just like it's always like really hard to fathom whenever you hear about a, a violent crime like this, but especially with young people, like young women, like just at the beginning of their lives. It just is so senseless. And, you know, without giving too much away, there's a pretty strong case to be made that there could be or could have been a serial killer responsible not only for Lolly and Julie's murders, but also for a string of similar crimes in that particular region. And I'm, I'm trying to think of, uh, I think I have the names written down. Uh, there were young girls, Alicia Showalter Reynolds, the Colonial Parkway killings, um, including the murders of Kathy Thomas and I believe Be- Becky Dowski, Thelma Scroggins, Sophia Silva, and Carolyn McDaniel. And then there's Kristen and Katie Lisk. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the full list, but it's quite a lot when you start to mm-hmm. stack mm-hmm. it up. All within, what, how many miles of Shenandoah <laughs> National Park? Yeah, take the Colonial Parkway one out of there, and it's a pretty close radius. And, and um, you know, one of the things I was really happy about with Algonquin's publishing of the book is they included a, a photo inset that I think maybe you didn't get in the galley, where there's a, there's a series of photos, both of, you know, of Lolly and Julie and Deirdre and Tim and some of the evidence. And, and we also had a really talented cartographer do a series of maps. And one of the maps includes the radius of of these murders and where the women's bodies were found and i think seeing that and seeing the kind of circle that it makes around shenandoah is really chilling and i think it confirms what some fbi profilers and and forensic psychologists thought from the very start which is that this was the work of a single serial killer there's somebody who says and i believe it's a maybe an fbi guy or some other law enforcement official who says if there's more than one person responsible for all this, like this area has got a big problem. Like there's very rarely like two serial killers or, you know, <laughs> duking two, it out, right? Yeah. Duking it out in like, of like rural Virginia. Yeah. Rural Virginia. So it's, you know, it, it sort of strains uh, credulity. You know, it's hard to imagine that there could be more than one person responsible. There are also similarities in terms of the way these women were killed. Some of the, you know, I feel like there's some crossover though, not perfectly with each and every one. And, you know, it's pretty infuriating to read about and and also confusing to read about how much resistance within law enforcement, within the FBI ranks in particular, there was to pursuing the notion that someone else might be responsible, someone other than Daryl Rice, that these crimes might be connected, that there Mm -hmm. are leads we should be chasing here. And it's almost like a willful resistance. It can seem that way. 
but it's also like a maddening lack of resources, human and otherwise. You know, there's mm-hmm. just a backlog mm-hmm. of cases, and it's like, well, we just don't have the the manpower to handle it all. And so, I mean, how do you? If if I'm the family and friends of anybody who's been lost in this way, and that's what I'm told, that's that's not going to sit. You know, that's a that's a harsh thing to say to somebody who's grieving the loss of a loved one in this way. So it's hard not to feel angry. And it's hard not to wonder too, like, what the hell's going on? Mm-hmm. Like you, you mm-hmm. talked about that Ashcroft announcement in two thousand and two. It's pretty it's pretty difficult not to view it through the lens of public relations. You know, and it's like, wow, that's really if that is indeed what was happening, like, you know what? The country's traumatized. We need a solution to this case. We need some positive PR for the department and for the country. We need them to feel, we need Americans to feel safe, like we're on task. So we're going to make a big to-do about solving this, even though we really have a, you know, what is a fairly thin case, you know, on paper, or like from an evidentiary perspective. And you go, man, that's pretty, uh, like, what's the word for that? You know what I'm getting at? Like, it's, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. how can that be what's guiding you? You know, you should have a different, North Star, if you're in law enforcement, yeah. and what's going to make the department look good. But it's not uncommon for big institutions, powerful institutions, to place their own reputations above maybe their mission and importance or what's right. Yeah, you know, and I and I really think that it's something that we really need to address as a nation. I, I am flabbergasted by the number of exonerations that are happening right now. I am flabbergasted by the number of innocent people who having served decades in prison are coming out, you know, and they're shattered now too, you know? And, you know, I talked to multiple FBI agents who were very frank with me about the the level and the degree to which confirmation bias had sort of erroneously defined their work. I talked to two FBI agents who worked very closely on the Yosemite murders, which, you know, Carrie Stainer was eventually convicted for. And, and they said to me flat out, like, listen, you know, we had it in our head that we knew who the guy was. And so we were ignoring everyone else. Like we talked to Carrie Stainer and we were like, this guy doesn't matter because we know who did it. And then Stainer went on to commit at least one more murder, you know, and and those those agents who I think were really just frank and candid and, and willing to kind of take the blame, you know, in the interview, you know, they know, you know, they know what happened, they would like to go back and redo things. And I think that, you know, we all and especially institutions and especially institutions of power have to start accounting for this idea of fallibility and the fact that 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 there is no such thing as objectivity. And, you know, and I, I became very aware at multiple moments in the book, how little objectivity I had. And I try to be really honest with readers about that. I think these these big systems like the FBI has not yet had that conversation on a on a larger level. Yeah, I guess there's just a lot of pressure internal and otherwise to to solve these things, you know, especially the ones that are higher profile or have captured the national imagination in some way. Sometimes- and I think have captured the emotional attention of the investigators themselves. I mean, every investigator that I talk to relating to this case can recite you chapter and verse details about these young women's lives. And they've since forged really powerful relationships with their families. So these investigators are hugely, as you said earlier, hugely emotionally invested. But I think sometimes that emotional investment clouds us in ways we don't even realize it does. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think Tim Alley might be 
you, you know, might fall under that umbrella. You know, this is a guy who really cares and is a good human being. And, you know, we should say like the law enforcement officers who have to investigate these crimes, like they're not made of steel. Like these people carry this stuff. Like it's, it haunts, you know, the really good ones anyway, like it, it haunts them. They carry it with them. It's personal. And mm -hmm. so it's understandable that there would be a deep emotional need or, or drive to want to solve the thing and to find someone who they can say, you, you know, this is the responsible party. We, we've brought some closure to this, or I know that word is loaded, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I understand that at a human level. And you like to think there, there would be like systemic ways from a training standpoint or just from an operational standpoint that big systems and organizations like the FBI could try to guard against these emotional impulses, even when the emotional impulses are coming from a good place to try to make sure that the facts are truly followed and that the right people are held mm -hmm. responsible, you know? In this era of CSI and other true crime TV shows, we love to believe that a forensic lab can determine this for us. And I think as a country, we've very wrongly just tried to side on, on what is ultimately very subjective science. You know, we're only now starting to unpack the way in which things like hair analysis, you know, bite mark analysis, even, you know, trace DNA and, you know, let alone like the genetic DNA type stuff that's happening with 23andMe. I mean, this is fallible on both an ethical level and also on a scientific level. And and we're in a phase in our country right now where, where we're over-sciencing the science, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, you do a great job of like unpacking the forensic side of like law enforcement and you know, homicide investigations, you know, all that stuff has changed so much in our lifetimes. And I don't know, I think from like an outside observer standpoint, when I, you know, I'm just sort of like, oh, DNA evidence, it's rock solid. It's, it's a hundred percent accurate. You know, when somebody's D when somebody's DNA is found at a crime scene, then it's infallible, but it's, it's more complex than that. And, uh, I'm not going to, I mean, your book does posit something of a conclusion, but again, I'm going to let readers come to that on their own. I would like to end by asking you how you're doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the book does end on a high note. You know, you, I, I will say that, you know, you, you personally end on a kind of high note where you're in a better place than you often were over the course of writing this book. And I was thinking of the movie Capote and I was thinking of Truman Capote because of his book in cold blood and having read about what a toll that book took on him. This is not uncommon for people who work in this mode. For writers who are out there, and I have a lot of writers in my audience, you know, who might be interested in long-form investigative journalism or crime, uh, crime literature, you know, and and this kind of thing. You just talk a little bit about navigating the emotional terrain of it. Yeah, and and you know, in some ways, I'm the worst person to talk about it because I know that I'm an emotional sponge, and I have always had a hard time not having an emotional response to stories. You know, I was writing a story a while ago about these critically endangered right whales getting caught in nets and dying of infections, and I was just regularly weeping. You know, reading these scientific articles, and you know, that's definitely. Um, I don't know if weak is the right word, but that's definitely sort of an aspect of my character that I really have to check with. I was thinking a lot about people like Michelle McNamara, David Carr, other people like that, for whom they became utterly sort of inescapably consumed 
by these projects. And I knew I didn't want that going in. So I tried to create really good boundaries for me personally. I decided I wasn't going to work on this after dark, you know, that was one thing I tried to do. And it's still, it's still left a real mark, you know, that's, you know, probably just a scar I'm going to carry with me. But the thing that I kept going back to again and again and again was what an opportunity it is to be able to tell some of these stories, these narratives and these legacies. And yes, this is a story of murder. And yes, this is a story of like brutality and violence, but it's also the story of these two utterly remarkable humans who had already done incredible work. And it's also the story of a, of a love story that was what kind of ahead of its time in terms of, again, like the social milieu. And so like in my darkest days, I kept having to go back to that, you know, I kept having to go back to the reason I was telling the story. And I kept having to go back to, you know, the friends and family who wanted closure. And I kept thinking, well, you know, what we do is, is a kind of vocation, you know, and if this vocation can somehow lead to a greater good, then, then what right do I have not to do it? I think you say in the book, like, what right do I have to look away? Uh, something like that. And that spoke to me because I often talk about how like I can't watch violent things the way that I used to. Even like a, you know, a shoot 'em up movie. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be true crime or something. But I'm just, I think since I had kids or maybe I'm getting older and softer with age or something, but it affects me so much. And especially like at night, like watching a really violent movie or something. Mm-hmm. That's, like I can't watch Mindhunter or whatever before bed. I don't know how people do right. that. Um, but I do sometimes check myself and think, you know, we have to bear witness, uh, you know, especially when a great injustice has been perpetrated against innocent people. And you get, I can imagine how you get to a certain point in your relationship to this story and you just say, okay. And you take on a sense of responsibility, I guess is what Mm. I'm, I'm driving at, you know, where you feel like, well, if I don't, who will? you know, the, the story needs to be told and maybe I could shed some light. Maybe I can help mm-hmm. advance the cause of trying to understand what really happened. And I guess the last thing I'll ask is getting to a place of comfort with respect to surviving friends and family. I imagine you have mm-hmm. to try to build, you know, you describe building trust with uh, Julie's family, I believe. Lolly's parents had passed away by the time you got into this book, if I'm remembering correctly. Is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, her father was in late stage Alzheimer's. And so from an ethical perspective, there was just no way I was going to approach him. You know, two books ago, I wrote a book called Superstorm, which was based on an article I had written for Outside about the sinking of the bounty during Superstorm Sandy. And two individuals had died aboard that ship. And you know, that project was such an exercise in developing empathy for me and realizing how long it takes to develop trust with with a source that, that, you know, I think we tend to just sit down and be like, okay, first question, you know, without remembering that we're sitting with a person who's experienced incredible trauma, who doesn't know who we are, who has every right not to trust us, right, and no reason to trust us. And so, 
we don't get to just jump in. Like, that's not fair. That's not right. And so, so, you know, I learned a lot with that project about relationship building, which is not really taught in J school or an MFA program, you know? So realizing that relationships, obviously professional relationships, but relationships nevertheless have to be formed, you know, it has to be a two-way conversation, you know, it can't just be the, the consumption and the solicitation of information. And so I had, I have learned that and I continue to learn that with every story about tragedy that I write. Um, and, you know, it's something I take really, really seriously is, is, you know, what is it to be the carrier and the bearer and the vessel that, that a story is going to be placed into and, and how can I be the right vessel for that story? Well, you've done an admirable job. We've talked about a lot of what your book covers, but not all of it. And I hope we've given listeners uh, enough of an overview to dig into it. It's a, a wonderful and unnerving and vital exploration of not only this crime, but you know what this crime is emblematic of culturally. And I think it sheds light on our criminal justice system and ways like we've talked about that law enforcement needs to be systemically improved so that we don't have so many cold cases mm. and so many crimes like this that go unsolved and there's more to it, but I just really enjoyed it. And it brought into context, you know, my time on the trail in 97 and all the rest. And I just really am grateful to you for the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for so much nuance and depth of conversation. It's just such a wonderful delight to really kind of sink into a really meaningful conversation like this. So I appreciate it. All right, you guys, that was Catherine Miles. Her new book is called Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. It is available now from Algonquin. You can find Catherine Miles on the internet at catherinemiles.net. She's also on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Catherine underscore Miles. Again, the book is called Trailed. It is absolutely riveting. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show is made available to listeners free of charge. It is a listener-supported show. So if you like this program, if you get something from it, if you listen regularly, I hope you will consider supporting it. You can do so for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff, a t-shirt, a tote bag, coffee mug, book club subscription, what have you. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. My book, my novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is now available from IG in trade paperback and ebook editions. You can also get the audiobook, read by me, if that suits you. Go get a copy of Be Brief and Tell Them Everything wherever you get your books. If you would like to help this program, a great thing to do is rate it and review it wherever you listen. If it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, what have you, give it a rating, give it a review. It helps other people find the show. It helps uh, the show in the algorithm. The Other People Podcast also has its own app. Did you know that? The app is free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go search for it by name wherever you get your apps. Other PPL. 
the Other People Podcast also has its own YouTube channel. The entire archive of this podcast is available on YouTube. Go over to YouTube if you're a YouTube person. Search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Lesty, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. Also helps us find new listeners that way when you subscribe. So, great talk today with Catherine Miles. And I have some other ones in the pipeline that I think you're going to be excited about. So stay tuned. I will be back next Wednesday with another conversation. All right? Hope you're doing well out there. And if you're not doing well, just remember, it doesn't last. Nothing lasts. <laughs>